Hello, listeners. Welcome to Season 5 of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Every other Thursday, I chat with an author writing on the not-so-gritty end of the crime fiction spectrum. If you prefer your mystery without hardcore sex and violence, join us in the cozy corner. Welcome. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Author Lorenzo Carcatera joins me in the corner today to chat about his new mystery, Nona Maria and the Case of the Missing Bride. Welcome, Lorenzo. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Could you please introduce us to Nona Maria and tell us what she's up to? Nona Maria is an interesting character. I mean, it came out of, it grew out of, my last book was called Three Dreamers, and it's an, it was the nonfiction book about the three women who most uh, uh, inspired me and, and kind of direct me on the path that I ended up uh, following. And one of the three was Nona Maria, my real Italian grandmother. Anyway, the publisher was so taken with Nona Maria that they called me and said, would you consider turning her into a fictional present day character and having her solve crimes on the island of Ischia? You know, and I thought about it for a while. I mean, there were two obstacles to over, uh, to two hurdles to jump over. One was the island of Iska has no crime. There's zero crime. Uh, I called a couple of, I've been going there since I was a kid every year. I've lived there for summers, worked there. And my cousin said, well, I think the last arrest was in 1956. I mean, I don't know. There's literally no crime there. I said, well, it's going to be now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I came up with some crimes. And I kept her her the character in the novel is has a lot of uh the traits of my actual grandmother uh, my grandmother except it's present day my grandmother died in 1975 uh she wears the widow's black as my nona did she's very and nona did have some of the characteristics that make for a good fictional detective which is what i used she was very instinct uh she was very intuitive she did everything to help her friends and and family she and See, three, she knew everybody on this large island of 75,000 people. I mean, she could reach out to the poorest person from the rich, to the richest person. And um, she was a great cook. Uh, like in the book, like the real Nona, my grandmother, uh, the character drinks uh, 14 cups of black uh, espresso coffee a day. Uh, and then Nona at night, as soon as the sun went down, switched to white wine. And as does the character. Uh, she never drank water. Uh, the real Nona, I think, didn't drink water because of uh, World War II, because of the water was contaminated. And 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 real in reality, you can't drink the water in Ischia, tap water anyway. You have to drink bottled water. And uh, so she just didn't like, you know, she always used to say water's for plants. Uh, you know, it's not for me. So I took all the character, as many of the characteristics, not all, but as many of the characteristics of the real Nona and incorporated them. I mean, she looks like her. She's got white hair, one tooth, walks with a limp, the whole bit. And But I didn't want her solving crimes. I didn't want her to be Hercule Poirot. And I did want her to help and help the and work closely with the Carabinieri, the local uh, federal officials. 
and uh, which she does in both. There's two crimes in the first book. And, um, and she was just a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I, I used a lot of her saying she was a great cook. And, and again, similar to the real Nona Maria, she always had, if you showed up at her house, she'd have a, a feast put in front of you in 10 minutes. Uh, but yet no one ever saw her eat. No one ever saw her actually cook. And this stuff just materialized out of the blue. And, and, uh, but I found out later, and, and the, the fictional character does this as well. My Nona and her husband, my grandfather, had this great love affair. I mean, they met as young as teenagers, and this was an amazing marriage. And he died young, relatively young. He was in his late 50s, early 60s. And um, so when she did eat, she ate by herself, apparently, because in her home, and this is true of the fictional character as well, in her home, she had a, you know, those old thick frame photos you see in uh, home, a lot of the older people's homes. And so it was a photo of my grandfather in his 30s. So she eats her dinner facing him. So in her way, they're eating together, which is what they used to do when he was alive. They, wow. you know, most, of, most people who have children, you, you know, we eat with the kids when they're small. Nona and my grandfather would feed the children first and send them out to play or whatever they were going to do. And then they would eat together because that was their time together. So she continued that tradition even after death. And I thought it was a good bit of business for the fictional character to do to do that as well. Um, and she just she she really her job is not to be a detective. Her job is to help her friends. So in both cases, uh, there's a friendship link in why she gets involved. And uh, and I'm writing the second book in the series now. And the same is true that both cases are friendship linked. Uh, you, you said your your publishers were so taken with your Italian grandmother that they wanted her to star in her own series. Um, right. And uh, one of my favorite true crime podcasters, uh, James Petrigallo, tells stories about his Italian grandma on his true crime podcast all the time. It's a small town murder is, is the name of it. And that's always the most popular part of the show. So what is it that makes Italian grandmas so special? Why do people love to hear about them so much? They're really kind of fun. I mean, look, I met her when I was 14. Um, what I liked about her, and this is true of a lot of uh, Italian grandmothers, Nona never, asked, she, if she met you, she would never, ever, under any circumstances, ask you a personal question. It was none of her business. But by the same token, she would not want you asking her a personal question because she felt it was not in your business. And and so their friendships uh, revolved around, you know, not uh, eliminated gossip. She didn't she wasn't interested in gossip. You know, they're not like on the street corner chatting about, the, you know, did you hear what so and so is doing? She didn't care about any of that. They lived in the real world. And I, I think that's what's kind of interesting about Italian grandmothers. You know, a lot of them were affected by. World War II, even if they, and the years after that, I mean, as destructive as World War II was for Italy, the years after that were really bad for me, even what my mother tells me, the 10 years after the war um, were a very difficult time where food was scarce and water, obviously, as we discussed, couldn't, you couldn't have it. Uh, meat was a rarity. So what they made use of, the Italian grandmothers, of things that normally you and I would probably have thrown out. Uh, I mean, if you think about Italian uh, 
food, calamari and uh, anchovies and, and uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, sardines and things like that. Well, that's bait. You know, so they made food out of bait because uh, they didn't have, you know, anything. And um, even clams, you go digging for clams with your feet in the in East skin and you throw them in the boat and the guy cleans them and, and then you got a meal. So they were simple, but they kept their, um, they kept, uh, they kept on a steady path and they kept me on a steady path. And I think you could always go to them with any problem you have and they'd offer a solution. Sometimes the solution was wacky and, you know, made no sense. And sometimes it was, uh, on the money, but they were always honest. And I think that's, uh, the Italian grandma. I, I can't speak for uh, grandmothers here because you know my grandmother was there in Eskia, and um, but I, I found her to be completely loving and caring without demonstrating. You know, they, they didn't hug you every five minutes or anything like that. But you always had a feeling that you were protected, you were covered by her, and and that she would do anything for you, anything. Now, Noria is. Uh say past the age where you'd expect uh, someone to be you know chasing suspects through alleys yeah. or uh, <laughs> you know climbing fire escapes things like right. that but she's certainly not housebound i know she 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 does get around so but what are some yeah. of the the things about her that might surprise people uh, how mobile she is how you know she was not she's not well educated she never read a book as, as far as i know i never saw her read a book i she never went to a movie never went to the theater Never read a newspaper, didn't watch, she didn't have a television, didn't have a phone. But yet she knew everything that was going on. I mean, she said, you know, people talk, sometimes I listen. And uh, and she would hear things. So And people confided her in her because they knew that they could trust her. The trust is the key. I mean, if you can trust somebody, the combination of trust and loyalty, and knowing that I'd go to the mat for you regardless, you know, I would believe if you came to me and said, this is what happened, that to have someone on the other end have 100% belief in you, that you're telling them the truth and not playing them, you know, you don't see that a lot. And uh, so she just was that kind of, she was a real character. I mean, to me in the book, allowing me to write her as a fictional, I, I actually, when I was writing a book, I never thought of her as a fictional character. I know she was 70. Um, you know, I, yes, I didn't have her, you know, she didn't dirty Harry up the scene. She wasn't pulling out a Magnum. Um, I also made it, in, uh, I didn't want her to make it. She wasn't making any arrest. She wasn't, you know, she was helping the Carabinieri solve the cases, but she wasn't the one that, you know, chased you down the alley and put the cuffs on you. Uh, she didn't have cuffs, first of all. Uh, uh, at one point, the Carabinieri captain joked that he would make her an honorary Carabinieri and give her, and give her a badge. And she said that I, I don't like jewelry of any kind. I think she wore was a wedding band. Um, and I, I got to use a lot of the real people that I had met. And in, in the second book, I've continued to do so that I met in uh, the years in Ischia. Uh the, the, the Carabinieri captain is named after my cousin who lives in Milan and he's very nervous that I've made him uh, not handsome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he'll have to wait a while to see if uh, I did or not. Now, even though Notary is not putting the cuffs on people, it, there's, I can't describe the scene because it would give things away, but it, she 
shows that she's not somebody to mess around with. I mean, she can yeah. take care yeah. of herself. Yeah. So, and, and you know, people tend to as- underestimate older women. Uh, you know, they they kind of want to either ignore them or or just wrap them up in cotton wool and keep them safe. And she even says that you know, children need to be careful. The old need to be wise. So, how does she use her age and wisdom to her advantage, um, as well as her connections to the island to her advantage? I think a, everything she uses to her advantage. First of all, she's fearless. I mean, and I think when you get to a certain age, that fearlessness increases because you know you the clock's ticking you're in the fourth quarter anyways to figure what's going to happen also if you lived through a tough life as many of these older women have both here and and in uh i think of your own family think of the oldest person in your family they have not had an easy go of it most of the time nothing phases them you know what can you do that's going to be harder than any hard thing that they've faced in the past and survived you know, and they survived loss. I mean, the real Nona lost a, a son in the World War II. He died in a submarine, 19 years old. She lost a grandson at six months old in the war. She lost a, a son-in-law and she lost uh, three nephews. So when you suffer real loss of that heavy burden, and as you get older, uh, fear is, you know, is, is ingrained in you. You just kind of, you know, it's it's washed away with yesterday's rain in a way. So I think that's what helps make her throw herself in these situations because she doesn't th- – what's the worst? The worst that can happen to me is I'll die. Well, I got that. I'm good. I'm good with that. Uh, I'm going to die anyway, as she says, I think, a few times in the book. And uh, so I think that combination of having had that rough uh, survivalist life, you know, to survive what they've done it gives you a, a hard edge. Until and still at the same time, keep the warmth in your heart for other people and compassion for other people and caring about other people. It's an interesting combination, which I kind of found interesting to write about. I mean, the hard shell of survival mixed with the underneath, you know, and they don't like to show that a lot uh, about how warm they are. You know, Um, grandmothers are kind of cool. You know, they're kind of... uh, uh, you know, it makes me think that, you know, a grandmother's capable of doing anything, you know. Uh, and, and you think of it, I mean, I, while I was writing the book, I was thinking of people who, who attribute a lot of their success to their, either their mothers or their uh, grandmothers. And I just finished reading a book of, uh, by Michael Caine, the actor, and his mother was the steel spine that made him keep going and going and going through and he had a rough go. I mean, they really were poor, and he was very sick and uh, almost died from malaria in the uh, in Korea. And you know, was not a successful actor from the get go. It took him like fifteen years to get. And she just kept borrowing money and lending him money and just pushing and pushing. So it was that drive that you know what? Uh, I've been through worse. I lived through worse. You're going to be fine. I'll, I believe in you, and that's what uh, known as at least my Nona inspired in me. And I think she inspires in the characters she meets in the novels. And her friend comes to her and said, I have a problem. She'll say, she says, I believe you, I'll help you. And that's, uh, now it's a nice uh, heavy shoulder to have behind you. Right. Now you, you paint a very vivid uh, picture um, of, I'm just going to go call her your grandmother, even though your, your real grandmother didn't right. solve crimes, uh, but oh, she's definitely your grandmother. Not that I know of. She Not was that you know of. 
Uh, you, you also paint a very vivid picture of Ischia. Yeah. Uh, so would you tell us some more about the island? And, and is it really, except for the murder part, is it really the way you describe in the book? Well, it's, a beautiful, it's the most, I mean, uh, Truman Capote called it the jewel of the Mediterranean. It was uh, sort of an undiscovered island, only known by certain celebrities and things until I knew way too young to know about this. But in, ninth, in the early 60s, they filmed Cleopatra there. And Richard Burt, uh, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Taylor left uh, her husband, Eddie Fisher, for Richard Burton. So the paparazzi swarmed on Ischia to cover <laughs> this. And a lot of the developers started seeing photos of this beautiful island and said, you know, this could potentially be a tourist thing. And my uncle, Mario, my, uh, the real, my real uncle, uh, was one of the early guys to say, this could this is going to be a huge tourist destination and he he started in the 60s with one cab in the mid 60s by the time i went to see him in the late 60s he had a dozen cabs 12 buses four boats uh ended up owning restaurants uh, hotels the island at its height pre covid would get 3 to 500,000 tourists a month it's a huge island it's a beautiful island it's uh it's got a population of 75,000 people. It's broken into six boroughs. It's a thermal. A lot of people go there for the thermal waters. Uh, it's got five great vineyards, but the Domber Vineyard is the best vineyard. And and what's interesting about the vineyards, if you're into wine, they don't water the grapes. You're not allowed to water the grapes on Ischia. But since it's a volcanic island and a thermal island, underground is all... Uh, uh, what do you call it? thermal waters or deep buried underground. So at night, it, uh, when the sun is down, the, the war, you feel the bubbles almost in, in, uh, for the grapes. And then there's the rainy season of April, March and April. So, it, it, you know, I've been there when it's packed. And then the curious thing is all the tourists kind of disappear around November. And the island is like an Edgar Allan Poe thing. It's like misty and you know, I remember being there in August when there's so many people on the streets. You just say, I, I can't deal with this. It's insane. And there are feasts and clubs and restaurants and food is fantastic. Then you go there and I was there in November and you walk in that same street and you look around and say, I'm the only guy walking on this street and there's mist. And, you know, and, you, and it's it's like, where where did everybody go? And And the temperature never, you know, to them it's freezing. The temperature never gets below 50. You know, so, but they're like so obsessed. Oh, it's super cold. You got to put a scarf on. You got to put a heavy coat on. I said, it's like 50 degrees out. Relax. I got a jacket. It's calm. It's fine. And they think it's because we're crazy Americans. And, and God forbid you get a sore throat, which happens. Uh, they say, you see, you didn't put on the scarf. <laughs> and, 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 and uh, you know, the medicine is, is practically medieval, yet they all live to 95. Wow. You know, I don't quite understand. I've been to the doctors there. It's a frightening experience. Uh, truly frightening. I mean, uh, you know, you just, I mean, I'll give you a quick example. I had a what I thought was just a really horrible flu, a high fever. I was about 20 at the time. They took me to a doctor. He sat across from his desk smoking a cigarette, asked me what my symptoms were. I told him. He wrote out five prescriptions and he handed it to me. And I said, uh, aren't you going to check my blood pressure? And he said, why, do you have high blood pressure? I went, no. He goes, okay. I said, are you going to check my heart? He goes, do you have a bad heart? I said, no, I don't think so. He goes, all right. So I said, that's it? 
He goes, take these prescriptions. So then my aunt was the unofficial nurse of the island. I show, she said, let me see what he gave you. I show her the five prescriptions, she threw two out. So now we're down to three. I go to the pharmacist, who's more like a doctor than any doctor. He goes, let me see what he gave. He throws two more out, we're down to one. He said, take this, you'll be fine. So that's what you're dealing with. And, and, or you're dealing with their old world uh, cures, and uh, which do work. I mean, my wife, my late wife, um, was amazed by this. My son was about seven when he was in Ischia. And, you know, when he was out in the sun, he got too much sun, basically. And he had a horrible headache. So my wife was about to give him some liquid Tylenol, as Americans are quick to do. And my aunt said, well, what are you doing? So she took a glass like this and filled it with salt, half a glass of water with salt, put two cloths around it, flipped it over, put it on top of his head, and then had another cloth to dry any excess water that would fall on his forehead. Now, my, my wife was the daughter of two surgeons. She's looking at this like, what is this ridiculous? What is she doing? I said, roll with it. Ten minutes later, I swear, the water started boiling on his, the, with the salt. It just boom, it started with a couple of bubbles, and then it boiled fully. She took it off his head, wiped his forehead. His headache was gone. She gave him a little bit of money to go get a gelato and ice cream. And my wife said, what just happened? And she said, well, he had, too, he had too much sun and the salt water just pulled the heat out of his head. He's fine. Well, you don't, what is this, by the way? I said, it's a liquid Tylenol. She throw this away. So my wife actually used it years later. And I said, never let your parents see you do this. Because, you know, she said, no, I'll explain it to them. I said, no, no they're not going to buy this. Um, so the medicine is medieval, but again, they live forever. They don't complain. They drink a ton of wine. My uncle is 91, smokes two packs of cigarettes a day, chases women, and drinks a bottle and a half of wine. Wow. And he's happy as can be. <laughs> if I did that, I would have been dead like 10 years ago. <laughs> there must be something magical about the island. Yeah, they're definitely. No, they, people go there for the thermal baths and the mud baths. and. Um, and they claim it's, uh, you know, it helps with arthritis. It helps with rheumatism. A lot of celebrities go there, too. Uh, uh, Jack Lemmon and Billy Wilder went there and actually loved it so much they filmed a movie there called Avanti. Burt Lancaster filmed two movies there. The Talented Mr. Ripley was filmed there. Oh. Uh, parts of it where Jude Law get, well, I don't want to spoil it, but Jude Law is no longer in the movie after this scene. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that was the, you see the castle behind, uh, behind him as he's getting, uh, clubbed to death. Spoiler alert. Uh, the movie's and, been out for a while. Book's been out even yeah, longer. So. Exactly. And Matt Damon has an affinity for Ischia because, uh, I think A, his wife is Italian and B, a lot of, even some of the Bourne movies are shot, uh, along the port of Ischia. Um, so it is the celebrity, uh, you know, you see a lot of celebrities, People don't tend to bother you. They now have the big Ischia Film Festival, which has become a big deal. Uh, the hotels are, a, a number of them are five-star hotels, and they're great hotels. The restaurants are terrific, and they're all outdoors. And I was just there last, the last summer, and, um, and my family was giving me grief because I was turning their grandmother into a Sherlock Holmes, they thought. And uh, I said, well, not Sherlock Holmes, but... Uh, and uh, 
what was that? Oh, yeah, Miss Marple. I said, well, no, she's not Miss Marple because she was married and she doesn't drink tea. She drinks wine. You know, there's a lot of differences. But uh, we should be so lucky she sells like Miss Marple. But uh, uh, it's it's a great island if you ever get a chance. Uh, it's 18 miles off the coast of Naples for those who do would like to go. And what are some of the, the challenges that you faced uh, setting your mystery on an island? Um, it's... I admit I didn't realize it was as large as it was, but it is still an island, so it's it's not quite the same as you know something taking place on a uh, you know on the mainland where you know the transportation issues and you know you've got things like gazillions of tourists in the in the before times, and as you mentioned, there was no crime. So, what were some of the challenges that you faced uh, of, uh, with that as a setting for uh, a mystery? I think one of the challenges, obviously, as we discussed, is to come up with the crimes. And two, once you do that, is to uh, make use of the settings. So the challenge was to, I knew the island so well. I think I'd have a huge problem if you'd asked me to set this in, on an island in Greece where I, I, I would know. I don't know the customs, the tradition. I mean, I know all the, the uh, traditions. Um, I know they're very superstitious. So I, I use that in the book. I use a lot of the superstitions that they have including this thing called La Fatura, which they believe if uh, if you went into some stranger's home and they offered you something to drink or eat and you didn't know them, you risked by drinking or eating something the chance that you would be for the next 20, 30 days not yourself and end up married to someone you barely know. And that's instilled in children at, uh, from the youngest age. I mean, as soon as I landed on the island, from New York, they said, listen, come here, you, whatever you do, don't do, you know, this is, you, you cannot do this because it happened to your cousin, you know, Giovanni in 19, whatever. And to this day, I don't do it. I mean, if I go into someone's house and I don't know them, they ask me for, would you like a drink? I said, what are you having? And they say, nothing. I said, I'm good too. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so, you know, there are challenges. I mean, the, the, the dialect, which I speak, I mean, I spoke, uh, English is my second language. My mother, who is from Ischia, uh, the real Nona's daughter, never spoke English when she lived here for 35 years, as ridiculous as that sounds. But so I only spoke the Ischia dialect growing until I went to school at six. So trying to incorporate, you know, what, what to an Italian is a, um, humorous or not humorous, you know, to, to make that America, to Americanize it was um, not difficult, but it was a hurt, a small hurdle, but I found it pretty comfortable because it was terrain. I knew it was, to me, it was like writing about New York, except the beaches are really much more beautiful and the people are better looking and, uh, and the food is better. Uh, and it's not as crowded, even though it's packed with tourists, it doesn't seem as crowded as Manhattan at five o'clock. Um, and, uh, and I figure if you can write about Manhattan, you can write about anything. So, um, you know, I'd be lost, for example, if it was set in the Midwest somewhere. I don't know the Midwest well. You know, I, my daughter went to school in St. Louis, so I know that city a little bit. But I don't know, you know, my wife was from Cincinnati, and you know, which was a nice town. But, I, you know, I'd, I'd be lost. I, you know, I would have to do a lot of research. Here, I didn't have to do a lot of research. I have so many friends there that. I said, listen, I would call and say, I'm thinking of setting a scene in your restaurant. And they'd say, well, you're going to kill somebody? I said, no, I'm not going <laughs> to kill anybody. Somebody's going to have dinner in your restaurant. And I, you know, I just wanted to make sure they hadn't changed anything because I hadn't seen it for a while. And um, 
and I didn't deal with uh, COVID. I just treated it present day as if, you know, life goes on because then you have to, you know, then, then you kind of date your book yourself because two years from now, we hopefully we, we don't have to ever talk about COVID again. And, uh, but then if you pick up this book three years from now and you're reading about COVID and you go, I don't want to read about COVID and it just freed you up. And I didn't make her a specific age. I know everybody thinks she's 70, which uh, that was the hard part because the Nona I remember lived through the war. The Nona, the fictional Nona, was born in 1950, if she's going to be 70. So there were such times I would write, oh, she remembered the, the war years. And I went, no, wait a minute. No, she didn't. And so you have to clean that back. And um and then I, you know, I included my aunts and, uh, you know, I, whatever children she has or children she had. Uh, so it wasn't that difficult to uh, move to Ischia. Once I figured out the plot, the plot was the harder part. The characters were the easy part. The, and the island itself, I think of as a character in the book. And um, I mean, I think if you read the book and beyond uh, getting hungry from all the stuff that Nona cooks, uh, you uh, you do come away with a. I hope you come away with a feel for wanting to visit Ischia. and uh, um, and and you know I, something struck in my mind. Tess Gerritsen, who was kind enough to give a blurb to for the book, I read an interview or something or a couple of years ago where she said she kind of wished that um, there was a fictional character, a detective of a woman in her sixties or seventies who was solving crimes. And, uh, and I thought, you know, this could appeal to her, you know, this does make sense. Uh, a lot of the readers of of these kind of mysteries are tend to be older, I would imagine. And, um, and I thought they put a beautiful cover on the book too, very evocative of Ischia. Um, so yeah, it all fit. I mean, you know, sometimes when you think it's a, you know, going into it, I said, I have no idea how this is going to work out. I, you know, I'm lucky if I get to page five. And uh, it just kind of, I think the best part of it was that it kept her alive with, for me, um, you know, right now writing the second book, it's like she's around still. And, um, and, you know, I just kind of have her voice in my head. So that's an easy, you know, and that's not easy to get a character's voice in your head from the get go, but I had her voice and, you know, and her sayings, you know, you know, save the apple for when you're thirsty if you're spending too much money, uh, which I didn't know what that meant until I was 30, I think. Uh, <laughs> you know, but, um, and she just, uh, she was, I found her very funny and I find the character kind of uh, both funny and in control of her, uh, in control, always in She, You never see her lose it. She doesn't lose it. She there's nothing that could uh, makes her take a step back. I mean, she always kind of, you know, she doesn't, she wouldn't know what this meant, but in my mind, she sort of plays game theory or like a good chess player. She's three moves ahead of you. And she doesn't, she wouldn't know what that meant, you know, not that she was ignorant. She just wasn't educated, but she was always, she was, she figured where you were or you, where I would be three moves from now. And that's where she needed to get to. To, to solve it. And, um, and I think her relationship with the Carabinieri captain is kind of a, a nice uh, balance. He's younger, he's from the North and, you know, the South and the North in Italy do not really like each other very much. 
uh, and uh, even though the Northerners all come to East get a vacation, so we have to kind of deal with them for a few months to make some money. So, but uh, so I thought having this young captain, the Carabinieri captain from the North, that she almost takes in as a she almost took in everyone as a son or a cousin or a relative, you know, embraced them, um, cooked for them. And, uh, uh, you know, the doctor in the book, in the novel, is the real doctor, uh, Agostino, who is an amazing doctor. He could have been a superstar doctor. He could have gone to Bologna. Any city in the north wanted him. And he said, no, I'm going to go back and take care of the people who, who I love. And and he loved his, uh, my, he was, a, she was his aunt. And I remember she never drank water and he, towards the end, towards their later years, she had a little bit of high blood pressure. And he brought her some, he made house calls. He said, Z, I want you to take one of these pills a day. And she said, oh, no problem. And just pour me some of that wine. He goes, no, no. So I'd like you to take some water. He goes, you want me to take this or not? He goes, all right, all right. He poured her the wine. And he said, what are you going to do? You know, what am I going to jam it down her throat? Um, and he said, no, no. And, you know, she drank coffee. I'm like, you know, we're not talking a straight espresso. She would put two pieces of, uh, two small pieces of dark chocolate in there, uh, three sugars, and a shot of brandy. And we're talking 14 cups of that a day. Um, and then at night, you know, like a werewolf say, okay, wine time. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, she lived to a great old age and, and, uh, um, Never, I mean, I never saw a bottle of water at her house unless her daughter was visiting one of my aunts and, you know, she'd say, Mom, I need some water. She had it in the fridge, but she just would never take it out because she thought, like, who's going to want water? You know, I mean, she would always say, do you want some wine or you want a cup of coffee? And if you said, I want a glass of water, go, have some wine. It's better. Uh, so she's a, she's a great character to write about. I hope readers respond to her. Because I'd like to keep writing about her for a while, and uh, but you know, time will tell. Hey, you, you mentioned that I'm I'm still stuck on the the chocolate and the um, yes. sugar and brandy and the coffee because now I really want that. Yes, <laughs> um, and you want it fourteen times. I don't know. <laughs> I, I I yeah I I I could I could do that. Espresso <laughs> cups. Will, I I could yeah that. Um, Maybe on a weekend. I'm probably not the brandy before going to work, but yeah, I could do that on a weekend. And uh, and Nona Maria is is sounds justifiably proud of her her coffee in this in the story. So, what's what's the secret to brewing the perfect espresso? Uh, oh, I think it has to, for. I mean, it it has to be really strong, very strong coffee. Um, I don't drink it as hot as the Italian. I don't know how they do that. I mean, they just whoosh, and it's like, you know, seriously. It's a, I, said, Don't, I mean, I, you know, they, I, you know, they think because we're I'm American, I'm blowing on it, and uh, I get a little spoon. I go, come on, just go. <laughs> and it literally takes them like four seconds. You know, they do that quick, and it's gone. And um, and then if you do a second cup, you know, because our cups here are like, you know, you've seen our mugs that we drink yeah. out of, they're massive. And if you ask for a second cup, if you're not Nona, they look at you really second cup. You look like a glutton for wanting a second tiny little cup, which is a sip of coffee. You want two sips of coffee is what you're asking for. Um, but no. And I, I actually, in the summer in Ischia, I like I like it cold, so I get a nice uh, coffee. 
and which they kind of in the morning frown on because they like to have their pastry with it in the morning. And uh, but I don't eat pastries, so you know, uh, again the faux pas on my part. Um, but um, I think that the strength of the coffee determines the quality of the coffee, and they use certain brands of coffee that you know each one. My grandmother liked. Uh, they grind their own coffee beans. They they prefer to do that as opposed. And if I at one time I, my grandmother asked me to go get her some coffee. She was running low after 14 cups a day. So I just assumed she meant like a container of coffee, which I got her. And she said, no, 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 no. And I went, she talked, took me and said, this is what I like. You dug the beans, you weighed the beans. And she liked to mix like three different kinds of beans. One much stronger than the other. Uh, and uh, and the owner of the store would say like, your nonna has the heart of a lion to drink this kind of coffee. And uh, and it's true. I mean, they. She also believed that the hottest. A lot of Italian uh, grandmas believe this. The hotter it is outside, if it's broiling hot, if you drink something super hot on that particular day, your inside of your body cools, and you'll feel cooler. So the first time she talked me and my cousin into doing it, it was the hot. One of the hottest days in Iskia. We were both drenched in sweat to begin with. Said no, no. You have to drink this coffee. You have to drink it fast, and you will feel so cool. So, like idiots, we you know we were teenagers. We drank it down. We kissed her goodbye. We started on our way. We were going up this short hill, and my cousin stopped. We were literally drenched. We were like, we might as well come out of the the sea. And he had trouble breathing. He said, "I I think Nona killed me. I think Nona killed me." And uh, an hour later, a few minutes later, about 20 minutes later, we were in my, my uncle's uh, tour boat, uh, tour bus. And my cousin came to me and said, you know, maybe Nona's onto something. I feel much, much cooler. And I said, the bus is air conditioned, you idiot. <laughs> I said, nothing to do with that broiling cup of coffee we swallowed. I said, my shirt is still wet. <laughs> yeah. So, but she believed it. And a lot of people on these, a lot of people in general believe if you drink something hot, when it's very hot out, the inside of your body cools down. So, you know, you take it, you know, I mean, some of the traditions I still follow, some I kind of, uh, I know about, but, you know, when my child had an earache, I took her to the doctor. I didn't say to my wife, just put a potato in the oven and then put it on her ear. She'll be fine. Because the potato will suck the uh, infection out. We didn't go that far, uh, but uh, no, it's it, look. It's great for me to be, you know, to have one foot in both uh, both countries, and uh, you know, I could easily live in Italy tomorrow. I could live in Ischia. It'd be hard for a hypochondriac, however, to live in Ischia because I'd be panic stricken. <laughs> I'd have to buy my doctor a house and make move him down next door to me. Uh, that would, that would be my perfect solution. Then, then, uh, but the food is great. Uh, the, the climate is wonderful. Um, you know, sometimes it gets, if it's too crowded, it gets a little, you know, uh, but it, it's the kind of island that's so big that if you want a quiet, romantic place to have a dinner, the mountain, you go to Mount, one of the great restaurants in the mountains and it's a quiet night. If you want action and activity and, you know, you go to the port or one of the other boroughs and there's tons of parties going on and the feast, there's always fireworks and, and things. And 
uh, or you just sit outside. And what I love to do is go for long walks and you see them outside in their garden chairs facing the bay and, you know, drinking either their wine or their coffee and, and telling stories. And I love to listen to the stories and they are gifted storytellers. They may not know how to read. They may not know how to be the best read people on the island. They may not be the most, uh, you know, uh, know about the latest movies or the, the TV shows or whatever. They've never seen, uh, uh, you know, some of our West Wing or they've never seen uh, 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 Raylan Givens or anything. But they they have lived life. They have lived a full life and they can, and they're just really exuberant in the way they tell their stories. And that does, uh, I hope I captured some of that. And, and you did capture a lot of the, the traditions of, of the island in, in your book, and including, um, I like the tradition of ending your day with wine. So uh, we'll wrap up with uh, talking a little more about the wine. You alluded to it before you told us a little about it and about not watering the vines. Can you, can you tell us some more about the, the Dambra vineyards and how Ischia wines are different from other Italian wines? Yeah, the Dambra, I know the Dambra vineyard well because they, their family and my family are kind of interlocked. Sarah Dambra, who her father, uh, Signor Dambra, runs the vineyard now. When my grandmother was alive, his father ran it. And they actually, during the war, a quick story during the war, my grandmother, his father, and a, a third rough friend ran the black market. The Nazis uh, occupied uh, Iski during the war. So my grandmother would have to make daily trips to Naples back, and it was pre-hydrofoil days. So each trip took 90 minutes oh. to get whatever she could find, bread, milk, whatever she could for her children. My grandfather was a shepherd, so he had to take care of the flock. And But at night, one night a week, they had a cart way on the top of the mountain where the vineyards are, and they would put uh, cloth around the wheels and cloth around the hooves of the uh, mule and fill the cart with uh, barrels of black market wine. And it's all sloping down, and it's slippery. And you know, it's like uh, the moisture makes it slippery. So they would take, because if the Nazis found them, they would shoot them. So they would take four hours to get to the port, put the barrels onto the, a rowboat, a guy with a rowboat, he'd pay them. He'd row out to another motorboat that was two miles offshore and then go to Naples. Mm -hmm. So the Dombra Vineyard has a long history. It's a beautiful vineyard. Sarah does these great tours. If you ever go, you just ask the hotel to arrange a tour. And uh, Sarah takes you around and... Uh, it covers about uh, 100 acres in the mountains. It's beautiful. And then she brings you down. And my son's favorite part is the wine tasting and not so much the tours. Um, and they, they make mostly the white is really great. And uh, they pretty much have you can get some of it in New York and some of it in Los Angeles. But they mostly are Southern Italian based. Um, and there's five vineyards. There's another vineyard. A young man named Tomasino runs a vineyard. Now, what he did, which was very smart, he does 60,000, no, 70,000 cases a year. But he has pre-sold 30,000 cases to China and 30,000 cases to Japan. And the, the other 10,000 he sells among Southern Italy. So by the end of harvest, he's profit. I mean, he's made pure profit. I mean, it's not a huge 70,000 is, you know, it's not going to make you a, a gazillionaire, but it's going to make you a nice living. And but so he never has to worry about selling his wine. 
because he's got China and Japan as regular customers. The Dombras just have Southern Iskia and some a little bit of Capri. And uh, the wine is very, it's what we call table wine. You know, it sells in Iskia, it sells for nothing for like uh, in a restaurant, eight, nine euros. Uh, here, I've seen it sell for like 22 to $24 a bottle, which, you know, is a little high in my opinion, but that's, you know, I guess they got to make a profit. Um, and are you, you're going to have it shipped here too from, uh, and some, so there's a couple of wine stores in New York that carry it, but I like it shipped from East Kit. Uh, the only difference is they, the Italians don't put as many sulfites in their wine as we do. I don't know why we put so much. They put a lot less, which is why if you drink a lot of red wine here, you might get a headache in Italy. You don't because they don't put the sulfites and, uh, it's the sulfites that give you the headache. I, I've been told. Um, but the wine, I mean, you can drink, uh, my son and I were, were there last July and he drank a ton of wine and you never get drunk. It's also almost impossible to get drunk on it. And, uh, he's living proof that you can't get drunk on Italian wine and he had a great time. And, uh, all my friends drink, uh, the Dombra wine and it's, uh, you know, it's just not potent. You don't feel, you know, sometimes you'll drink a bottle of great wine, but it's, strong and it's heavy and it weighs you down uh this doesn't this makes you it quenches your thirst and then a lot of it for dessert during the day they'll they'll cut up skin peaches and cut up peaches and put it in a, a decanter of uh, uh dombra white wine and put that in the fridge hmm. and then for a dessert you get a glass a big glass of wine with peaches and a and you drink your you drink wine again, but you have it at least with, you justify it by saying, well, I am having fruit. So, <laughs> you know. so, uh, no, actually would, I give her, I gave her once a glass of, I said, no, no, have you had the peaches with the wine? And she said, I've heard of it. I said, we'll have some. She took the fork and took the peaches out, drank the wine, said it's very tasty. <laughs> and it is, at least she got some peach juice out of it. Um, and uh, I don't know if they, they've, I've never seen another fruit use. It's always peaches. And, uh, and a lot of the people in Ischia, set, uh, about 30 to 40% grow their own wine. Oh, wow. And have their, so you'll go to someone's house and there's a wonderful restaurant called Casa di Alberto, which means Albert's house. And it literally is his house. It's five acres outside. But to get there, if, if you don't know where it is, the hotel has to book it. Because it literally is a front gate with his name on it, but you'd be ringing like a doorbell to someone's house. You you know, and then you know they say who is it? You say the uh, the you name the hotel and he buzzes you in, and he makes his own wine. His wine is called Red and White, and that's it. And so I liked it, and I don't usually like homemade wine. I find it very strong. And I said to Alberto, I said, you know, I'd like to buy a couple of bottles, take them back to the states. He goes. Let me show you. He said, I make, and he showed me these two huge barrels. He said, it's just enough for the restaurant. Just enough for the people. 85 people a night, 85 bottles. You know, I said, well, not everybody drinks wine. He goes, what do you mean? Who do you know that doesn't? I said, well, I know a few people that don't. He goes, don't send them here. And uh, so, so you have the people who make their own wine that don't ever, you know, go out. Uh, they have, they grow their own vegetables. They grow their, my grandmother had a beautiful vegetable garden. Rabbit is the, uh, uh, the delicacy of the island. Again, because they didn't have beef, 
So the rabbits are everywhere on the island. Uh, my grandmother's called her was called the the assassin of rabbits, but because um, she would make a great rabbit sauce. And uh, I mean, two th uh, a quick story that almost traumatized my kids. That first summer we went there. My mother, knowing how much I like rabbit, uh, had two rabbits in a cage outside her apartment or her uh, house, and my kids were like small, six and eight, I think six and nine and they said oh wow grandma has rabbits and i went oh. so i pulled my wife and i said no no susan that's for dinner tonight she goes what i said the, the rabbits are tonight's dinner she goes what do you mean i said well my mother is going to kill the rabbits and cook the rabbits that's why she has them goes, are you <laughs> she's gonna murder two rabbits i said well it's not murder i know but you know there's so many of them she's you know so I said, like, people kill deer. They eat deer meat. I mean, you know, it's um, – so she said, well, you better get the kids out of here. I said, well, all right. So I got the kids out. My mother, of course, wanted to show them how she killed the rabbit. I said, Mom, relax. Uh, calm down. And uh, But we had the rabbit that night. They thought we were having chicken. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it turned out fine. So my grandmother made a great rabbit sauce. Uh, but, for example, again, to use uh, how – they had to make use of what's there. They, uh, pa my favorite pasta is called pasta putaresca, which means spaghetti of the prostitutes. The reason they call it that is because it takes 10 minutes to cook and each and the prostitutes would eat it in between clients. But it's a very simple sauce. It's a red tomato sauce with capers, olives, anchovies. The pasta, the sauce takes t seven to 10 minutes. It, it takes as long to make as it takes to boil the pasta. You put it in, you put some hot pepper, you have a meal with some bread. And, you know, again, capers, anchovies, olives, that's it. And the uh, tomatoes. And tomatoes grow everywhere on East. They're, they're really amazing tomatoes. So, again, they used uh, what poverty left them to use. And they turned it into fine cuisine. So the end, you top it off with a glass of Dambra wine or a glass of Frenet Branca, which... Uh, my grandmother also drank, unfortunately, but I've been drinking since I was four. It's a digestive. We tell ourselves, but we don't know what it is. Really. <laughs> I actually have a bottle of that, so I, I've um, I've never had it by itself. I've only had it in cocktails. Oh, the Frenet? Yes. Well, if you ever have if you have an upset stomach, there's nothing better for you than Frenet. And if you want to drink it in the summer, Iskia style, you put ice and a, a lemon peel and twist the lemon in it. Mm. And uh, not the mint. Nobody drinks the mint. The mint, <laughs> the mint is like lemon pledge. Um, but the regular Frenet is really excellent. And uh, uh, it's just really good. It's, uh, well, I'm glad you have it. Well, you're the first person I know who has it other than me. So that's oh. pretty cool. <laughs> Because I, I I I like to try different cocktails, and that's an ingredient that's in in some of the the cocktails in the. I didn't know they uh, made those... cocktails from Frenet. What kind of cocktail did they make? Oh, uh, what did they have it in? I'm trying to remember. It was um. It's got to be a oh, strong cocktail. No, because it was mixed with something like sweet vermouth, so it kind of everything sort of balanced like the the sweet balanced out the bitter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I think it was a. Uh, uh, Right. Yeah, I used to, you know, the monks make it allegedly, and I and my cousin said, you know, this is this is ninety eight proof. I said it's not ninety eight proof. The monks make it. It's all earth. 
And in fact, in Florence, I did a story for the National Geographic Traveler years ago. I went to the pharmacy in Florence, which is the oldest pharmacy in the world. And you'll be placing on addition to you and I having Fernet, Da Vinci and Michelangelo used to drink Fernet. Oh, because wow. they, had, they had serious stomach issues. It wasn't bottled. The monks would make it, I guess, and wherever they would put it in a little container for them. But um, because they were facing, they didn't have any fruits or vegetables until the 15th century. And so they were always complaining about their stomachs and they would drink Fernet. So I figured if it was good for them, you know, who will wait <laughs> to complain? And, uh, and it does settle your stomach. I wouldn't have, oh, it was uh, the Hanky Panky. It was, it was a Fernet gin and sweet vermouth. Wow. What, was that strong? Uh, no, actually it's, it's, it, everything's so balanced out that it's, um, I mean, I, I can't pretend I was taking it to settle my stomach. I just wanted a really good cocktail, but, um, <laughs> the hanky panky, this was a Fernet Branca gin and sweet, sweet vermouth. That's pretty good. I, uh, I, I next time I go to East, I'm going to ask for a hanky panky. I'm going to leave that down actually. See if the, my friend, uh, can make it. Sweet vermouth. So the sweet knocks out the the bitter of Fernet. Yes, they, they balance each other. And the rest is booze. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the booze doesn't balance anything out. It knocks you, it knocks you off balance. <laughs> but it's tasty. Yeah. Although it's... it's, it's <laughs> a drink, yeah. <laughs> Although it, it sounds as though there are um, uh, plenty of uh, delicious wines and, and coffee to go with the delicious food uh, in the the beautiful island of Ischia. Yes. Uh, no, it's, uh, yeah, the food, I mean, you know, they, they, they uh, recommend when you first get there, because you've traveled hours to get to the island, to settle your stomach, you get a, uh, the lemons are, in Ischia, the lemons are so large, they eat them almost, they cut them in half. And they put uh, pepper and a little bit of olive oil on top of it. So you almost eat mm. it like you could eat, um, I guess, a grapefruit or a cantaloupe. Wow. And that does settle your stomach um, if you like lemon. Um, or if you like, no, no, you wait till it's dark and you have some <laughs> for that. But um, so the, le- yeah, the lemons of Ischia are, they're the size of grapefruits. And they're wow. pretty pretty large and or you can just have them squeezed and put in a glass of uh, mineral water and drink that down mm. uh, and uh, but they have a tradition they had a uh, they had a thing where they didn't like ice cubes because um known especially was mis- distrustful of ice cubes because she thought they would make your stomach explode and i don't know where she picked that up or maybe it was some world war ii thing that a a GI told her or a Nazi mentioned, I don't know, but, um, she never, well, since she didn't drink water, she's not having an ice cube anyway. So, so she was distrustful of, I think it was, and it was a question of not trusting it. Uh, yeah. I, I, I assume book two is going to take us back to Ischia to, uh, hang out with Nona some more and vicariously enjoy some more wine and, and coffee. Uh, what's, what's book two called and what's it about? <laughs> Book two is called uh, Nona Maria. Everyone is, every book will be called In the Case of, and this is uh, Nona Maria in the Case of the Stolen Necklace. And it's a little, it's turning out to be a little darker than the first one because uh, the murder is much more serious and it goes back to her past as a young woman. 
Um, and this woman showed up 20 years later that she couldn't help. Everything around the books revolves around her willingness to help her friends, her eagerness to help her friends. And this is one friend that years ago she failed to help or couldn't help or didn't want her help or, you know, turned her back to the help. Oh, was too frightened to take her help. And now she has a chance to redeem that. And um, maybe not, you know, not enough to save her life, but maybe to save, uh, catch the killer or help catch the killer. So that's number two. And if there's a number three, we already have a plot for that, but we'll see. Uh, you know, one a year is uh, all I can manage at this point. Well, fingers crossed that there will be a number three. Um, cause it's, it sounds if, yeah. if, if we can't, travel there in person we can at least travel there uh, through your through your writing exactly and if you ever watch a stanley tucci cnn show on uh, about searching for italy the very first episode of the first season he does go to east Gen, and he has a rabbit for dinner so mm. you know, i'm sure that's on demand at some point <laughs> and you can catch that and you can see the island yourself uh you know get a sense of the island because he loves the island and he made a big thing about it which of course, I, I sent him an email saying, you know, you had to kill a rabbit. You know, <laughs> you can have a pasta. But uh, he chose rabbit because he said it was the cuisine of the island. <laughs> I said, great, great. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Stan. <laughs> well, well, Nona Maria is the sleuth of the island. So where can uh, readers buy a, a copy of Nona Maria and the Case of the Missing Bride? They can order, pre-order it now through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any of the independents, uh, any independent local. I mean, I like to support the independents, so if you have an independent store right near you, uh, you know, that you know of, uh, they all have websites, call them, email them, whatever. If not, go to Amazon, when they'll get you, they'll find you, <laughs> and, uh, and Barnes & Noble, if, uh, you know, if they're in your area, will also find you. And it's... Uh releases on may, may 3rd is that correct may 3rd yeah we a month from sunday so. and uh, and where can readers connect with you to find out more about your your books and your uh travels to uh, italian paradise you can go to the website it's lorenzo carcaterra.com and uh and they can ask me any questions i'll be happy to answer them and uh they can see a little bit more about me and my uh, English Bulldog Rocco has uh, his own Instagram account called Rocco the Book Lover. They can go there <laughs> and he'll, uh, so far he's only posted, he just started posting a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and uh, most of the shots apparently are him asleep. So we're trying, I'm going to try to get him a bit more active. Uh, I mean, the goal is for Rocco to sell books to earn his kibble here. Uh, <laughs> There are no free rides, as one of them used to say. So, uh, either earn or look, earn or find the door. You know. But I'm 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 sure Rocco excels at being adorable. He is cute, but you know, cute only gets you so far. You know, money pays the bills. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for joining me today and, and uh, telling me so much about uh, Ischia and wine and food and your, your cute dog and your amazing grandmother. And um, I'm actually really hungry right now, so I think I'm going to go make a Frenette Branca cocktail and order some oh, Italian there you food. Go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> We're all Italian. We're all from Ischia at the, bottom, at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
right, take care. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I only have one for that. Actually, I have two, but you can have, uh, I don't know how you do. Are you having a hanky panky or just a. I don't know. I, I might try it with the, uh, what did you say, with the lemon and the uh, the lemon peel and the ice? I might try it that way. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> nice in the summer. And when it's a cool, a warm night, it's it's the best. I'll just try that one. And there's another, uh, uh, before I let you go, there's another one called Averna, another digestive, I don't know, digestive, I don't know if you've had that one. No, I haven't had that one. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a little sweeter. It's made, I think, from almonds. Hmm. And it's Sicilian. But it's really good, and I like that too, also with ice and... Uh, you don't need to twist the lemon. I just like, I just, it looks nice in the glass. It looks like I'm kind of James Bond-like. It's something James Bond would have in his glass. So uh, the, the Sean Connery James Bond, not the Roger Moore James Bond. <laughs> uh, and the Daniel Craig, my favorite Bond is the Daniel Craig. But, um, um, and if they, if it, if the dearest, a dearest elbow becomes James Bond. He definitely will drink Frenet. <laughs> he definitely looks like a Frenet guy. Uh, he can handle anything. He can easily handle Frenet. Anyway, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Enjoy your drink. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today was Lorenzo Carcaterra, author of Nona Maria and the Case of the Missing Bride. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Tune in next time for another chat with an author writing on the lighter side of crime. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.